Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is fresh, optimistic, and purpose-driven talk radio that promotes happiness from the inside out. Each week, Lisa spotlights trendsetters and change agents who offer sound emotional fitness tips for improving mental muscle tone and greater well-being. Guest experts include a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who are devoting their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen, is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and positive lifestyle management. Let's get to it. Here's Lisa. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. Alrighty then, let's get to it. Today's episode is an HHTR flashback favorite. We're talking about mental illness, the disease that does not discriminate. Let's join the conversation with Jamie Torkowski that originally aired in February of 2014. This week is particularly near and dear to my heart because it relates to depression and suicide prevention and all the other um, attributes that usually follow along when there is depression or suicide, and that being drugs, alcohol, addiction, and struggles. And life is filled with struggles. And my guest is Jamie Torkowski. Jamie is from Florida, Melbourne, Florida, and he had no intention of ever starting a worldwide movement, but that's just what happened to him. He was helping a friend when he started a small support group for someone suffering from depression and addiction. Quickly, it launched into the prominent nonprofit organization To Write Love on Her Arms. To Write Love on Her Arms is a nonprofit movement dedicated to presenting hope and finding help for people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. T-W-L-O-H-A, that is a mouthful, T-W-L-O-H-A, exists to encourage, inform, inspire, and also invest directly into treatment and recovery for those in need of services. Since its start in 2006, they have donated over $1 million directly into treatment and recovery, as well as answered over 170,000 emails from over 100 countries. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for joining us on the show this morning. Hey, Lisa. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, my pleasure. This is a very uh, a sensitive subject for me personally in the work that I do with vets who are returning from war, their family members, and I also work in addiction in the Malibu, California area. I see clients day in and day out who are this demographic and the need for services, the need for awareness of our community to help these young men and women is essential. So thank you for the work that you do. It is so important. Oh, likewise. No, thank you for what you're doing too. Uh, well, for me, it's a calling. You know, I, I get to do this every day. That's what I tell people. They say, how do you like doing this? I, I love doing this. I, I do believe that service is a part of what generates human happiness and to be able to reach out and, and help somebody elevates like we say, you know, not only our own well-being, but for the world around us. So let's talk about how you began. I mean, I gave a little bit in the opening, but here it is, 2006. All you thought you were doing was helping a friend, and then life took over. Yeah, I uh, I was living with a friend in Orlando at the time, and I was working a job that I thought I would do for really for my career. I was a sales rep for a clothing brand called Hurley. Hurley's in the surf space and they're based in California. And, uh, my buddy, David, his story was one of addiction and recovery. And he had made a new friend and her name was Renee and, and their stories had a lot of common ground, except Renee was very much in the middle of her struggle. And, and as you touched on, it was drug addiction. It was depression. It was a history of self-injury. We learned later there were suicide attempts. And she was denied entry into a local treatment center and ended up spending the next five days with us living at David's house. And I ended up just writing a story about the experience and about the conversations and, and kind of about, you know, what she had lived through and been through. And then we started to sell T-shirts as a way to raise money to pay for her treatment and uh, posted it online, posted it on MySpace at the time. And, and everything grew from there. You know, we were just blown away to learn that her story represented so many people really all over the world. Indeed. And I'm wondering if you can share why she was denied treatment. Um, it was just a, a small facility and they were not insured to be able to offer an element of detox. So mm -hmm. I like to point out that wouldn't always be the case. Hopefully that wouldn't often be the case, but in this particular case, you know, that, that was what she was met with. She was, you know, told that she was too high risk because of a, a self-inflicted wound on her arm and also because, you know, there were still drugs in her system and uh, told if she could stay clean, if she could not harm herself for five days, she'd be welcome back. And so, you know, it became our, our mission to uh, spend that time with her. So to write love on her arms does several different things. It raises money. It raises awareness. It uh, does prevention through the schools. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about the different aspects of what you do, because it's quite broad. It's not just, you know, you're not just a pretty face, so to speak. You're not just selling T-shirts. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, we don't even use that phrase, raise awareness. I feel like that gets thrown around so much and um, who knows what it even means half the time. Uh, we really exist to move people. We've, we've learned that most people who need help never get it. You know, we've learned that two out of three people who struggle with depression never get help for it. So what that tells us, what that tells me is it's not as simple as funding treatment or funding counseling if most people aren't knocking on those doors. I think we're really in a unique position to try to change that statistic and to try to 
move and encourage and invite people to get whatever help they need. And, and so we're constantly pointing to professional help. But I think just as much we're, we're pointing to honesty and, and the need for community and a support system and really just, you know, trying to push back at the stigma that says these are things we can't talk about. And we've just seen amazing stories and, and you know, life change come from people beginning to be honest about their struggles, their questions, you know, feeling alone, the need for help. So to me, that's the biggest thing we do. Uh, you know, we do it in the context of live events, uh, chapters on college campuses, more than anywhere else we do it online, you know, on our site, on Facebook, on Twitter. The the site has really become a source of encouragement and information for people around the world. So to me, that that's really, those. I think, two areas are, are at the top of the list for us. And then from there, we, we do get to invest in in professional health and in treatment and recovery around the world and even, even close to home in Central Florida where we're from. Uh, so that's a little bit, but I like to remind people, I think more than anything, we communicate and, and the aim is to move people. Agreed. And I want to give a startling statistic that there are more than 121 million people worldwide that suffer from depression. This is according to the World Health Organization. And I find this an astounding statistic because uh, de- depression is something, it's, it's, a, it's a dark, silent devil, I think. That uh, I mean, I have had depression in my past. It runs in my family. It is uh, a very challenging circumstance when it rears its ugly head. And I think something that you said about talking about it, about sharing the conversation and taking the stigma out of a very human experience is part of the treatment. Totally. I mean, I think the, the silver lining to that statistic that you shared is, is that so many people can relate and, and so many people live in this place or have lived in this place or, or maybe will live in this place. And, and I think it really is part of being alive on this planet. And, and it has to be something we're allowed and even encouraged to be honest about. And, you know, we like to point out if, if somebody broke their arm, they wouldn't try to hide it. They wouldn't try to fake it. You know, they wouldn't keep quiet. There, there's really no stigma. They, they would just simply know, I have to get this fixed. And, right. and yet when it comes to mental health or addiction, for some reason, you know, as a society, I think we approach it so differently. And, you know, closer to home within that statistic that you just, uh, that we just talked about, that 18 million of the, these cases are happening right here in the United States, right here in our backyard. And this is according to the National Institute of Mental Health. So it is a it is very widespread. And you give us some other fabulous statistics, which are are startling. In that twenty, uh, between twenty and fifty percent of children and teens struggle with depression, have a family history of this struggle, and uh, are the offspring. Uh, and the offspring of uh, depressed parents are more than three times likely to suffer from depression themselves so that there's a genetic uh, link to depression as well. We're going to need to take a break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. We know that life can be tough and that happiness can and does live alongside adversity. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when... 
Or, I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life, and at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Let's return to the conversation with Jamie Torkowski. This originally aired in February of 2014. We are talking about To Write Love on Her Arms, which is your nonprofit. It's a movement dedicated to presenting hope and finding help for people struggling with depression, addiction, self-injury, and suicide. And mostly you are targeting young people, young, young people around the world who are challenged in this day and age. Um, we definitely, you know, because we got our start on social media and, and there was so much of our early support came from fans, I think, you know, we, we do have a, a younger audience, but I think we, we love to sort of push back at that and, and say, hey, these are issues that affect people of all ages all over the world. Um, so we get excited when we hear from parents and grandparents and, and even kids as well. So we, we know these are things that touch all sorts of folks. Well, uh, this touches everybody. Depression and the subsequent um, actions and behaviors that result from depression is quite ubiquitous. You know, uh, this is where we get into addiction and self-injury, that when we are not feeling good about life or good about ourselves, we tend to want to numb that pain in some way. Definitely. I, I totally agree with that. I think we all, you know, I, I like to kind of pull back from the issues in our mission statement and just say, I think the question we can all relate to is what do we do with our pain? You know, we all cope in different ways and, and some of those ways are healthy and, and some are not. Correct. I agree. And what do we do with our pain? And I, I like to share with clients that suffering is part of the human condition, you know, that there is no way out of this life alive without it. That it's what we do with it. When it knocks on our door, you know, how we relate to it, how we are, um, how we have the ability to be transformed by the pain and the suffering or uh, victimized by it. And that really is, lies in choice. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Like everybody deals with it. You know, it, it definitely is not fair in terms of some people, it seems, have to deal with it much more than others. Uh, but it is part of being alive on this planet. So I, I agree with you there for sure. Um, in terms of addiction, you know, that when you get calls or when you get emails from young men and women around the world who are challenged by substance abuse, that they're self-medicating, they're trying to make the pain go away, 
what is the, what is the first line? What kinds of information do you give out? What kinds of um, support do you offer these men and women? You know, I think there's an irony to, to what we do, which is that we're constantly pointing away from ourselves. So we're really not pointing to, to the organization as the final solution. I think as I touched on it earlier, we, we really want to serve as a bridge, especially to professional help. So we're constantly pointing to treatment, pointing to counseling, and, and really oftentimes kind of validating someone and saying, hey, you reached out to us. Is there someone, is there some place in your community that you could take this step again? Is, is there a counselor you could sit with? Is there a treatment center you could walk into? And, and maybe on the way to that, is there a friend who could go with you? Is there a friend you could be honest with? So we're really constantly pointing to professional help. And as the years go by, we're more and more connected and more and more aware of, of places really around the world. Um, you know, so we, we're huge believers in professionals and, and, you know, people who have devoted their careers and, and so much of their lives to helping folks, you know, walk through the hardest parts of their story. So, uh, you know, a lot of times we're, some people assume, oh, you guys must be there, you know, to be their new best friend or their new pen pal. But we're, we're really hoping they end up, you know, sitting with a professional. This is brilliant because what I hear you saying is that you're acting as a liaison or an advocate or a bridge to help these young men and women get where they need to be. You know, that you may be the first point of contact that they're not feeling good about life or themselves or they're challenged with some addiction issues and they're reaching out to you and you're validating that, yes, this is a difficult situation. And yes, in order to be served and get help, you need to reach out to the professionals and trust, you know, that trust is a very big issue in this too. And often, you know, and oftentimes where I see huge value in, in what you're sharing is that um, there may not be trust of the medical profession. So they're reaching out to you because they want some validation in some way that they're that they're not crazy and that they're, what they're going through as a young adult is serious. But what to do? Should they trust? Should they go seek treatment or should they just continue to self-medicate? Sure. I, I think, you know, oftentimes I think whether it's that trust is broken or, or, or just that it's simply foreign. I think to a lot of people, you know, they they have no context for counseling or treatment. Uh, you know, could that person relate to me? Could they understand, you know, would I be labeled if I went there? And then I think to go back to trust, I think oftentimes trust is just something that's that's really busted up in their life. You know, so much of this comes from broken relationships and, and pain. And, and so, yeah, I, I agree in a way we're we're inviting people to, to trust again and, and to know that I, I don't know the exact quote, but, but there was something to paraphrase that really stayed with me, which was that most of our wounds will come in the context of other people, and yet most of our healing will happen in that same context. So, you know, you didn't, you didn't get hurt on your own, and, and you're not going to find healing on your own either. Wow. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to noodle around and try and find that quote, because that is beautiful. It's, from a, and it's, it's actually from a, a very Christian book called The Shack, and it's... Uh, early in that book. And um, I didn't even finish the book, but I remember reading that early on and really, really connecting with it. <laughs> it. Well, it makes perfect sense. And yet, if we're not willing to go there, and I think C.S. Lewis 
has a very famous quote about this. If we're not willing to reach that point of vulnerability, you know, if we're not willing to go to the lows, to sink dark and deep, then we're never going to fully uh, avail ourselves of the opportunity to have the glorious highs. You know, that it's, yeah. that, it's that place of being open that allows that's both to happen. Yeah, that's brilliant. I agree. And that's from an old guy, right? C.S. Lewis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty amazing old guy. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about um, the two-thirds of folks, people, men and women, suffering from depression never seek out treatment. So they are suffering in silence. Yeah, I I think that, you know, that's the statistic that really surprised me and, and I think really motivates so much of the work that we do and even our calling, you know, within this this field or this conversation is how do we fight and try to change that number? And and you know, early on there were people who thought, you know, oh okay, you guys just need to devote everything to funding counseling and funding treatment. And yet if that number is true and that statistic is true, then then you know the the majority of these folks are, are not even getting that help. So I think that's really become our focus to to try to address that. We were talking about the challenges that our young people today are faced with. You know, the fact that we live in a 24-7 society, that uh, there are so many choices available to us. And by having so many choices, in a certain sense, it paralyzes or can paralyze us with fear, you know, of what, what to be in our lives, what to do when we grow up. Jamie, what's your experience with young men, men and women that talk about this, that uh, when they get to the place where they can be open about their fears and their, and their, and their sorrows and their angst? Like kind of what is that process like for them? Yeah, well, what is the process like for them and what is the process like for you in helping in your organization of helping guide young men and women to, 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 to go out there and get connected and reach out to community? I think, I think we love to tell people that they deserve it, you know, just that, that this is the way life is meant to be lived. And, and this is this is just part of being healthy and, and even happy is that we're not meant to do this journey alone, you know, and, and certainly when it comes to the hard stuff and, and the pain and the questions, we're certainly not meant to live there alone. And I think we really love to shine a light on it as as really good news and just saying, hey, you deserve friends. You deserve a few real friends who you can be honest with and you can go beyond the status update and the stuff that is put together and, and you know, kind of shiny and new. You deserve people, you know, who, who really walk alongside you and help carry the weight and the burden. And then you just, you know, we, you hope that light bulb goes off. And, and so often I think we get to witness that where, where someone begins to feel free and, and begins to realize, hey, this is good news. I've been carrying this around by myself for months or maybe years. And, and so I think we, you know, we point to community and then we also point to professional help and, and it's not one or the other, but we're, we're really so often pointing to both. And, uh, you know, a lot of times later on, we, we get to hear the story of, of, uh, what maybe started out as difficult conversations, but, but they came to a place of realizing, Hey, these conversations changed my life. And, and so we, you know, we've just come to believe in it so much. 
And the help comes in many forms. We have a, a frequent guest on our show, Dr. Paula Kaplan, who's a clinical psychologist, and she has really been very outspoken about the diagnostic codes that are used for psychological and psychiatric illnesses. And she, in fact, helped write the, the, the diagnostic code. And then as time passed, began to understand that it was the diagnostic codes themselves that actually impaired the client from getting better. You know, that it keeps you pigeonholed and stuck in the story rather than being a person who is going through a dark period or depression or a period of addiction, that that became the definition of who that person is. And I think that I, I really agree with that, especially in, in, in seeing the clients that I see. Wow. Yeah, that, that's pretty interesting. So the, the, the concept of help, uh, of therapy, of counseling, of treatment can mean many things to many different people. And one of the things that I, I've come to understand just from doing the work with clients is that if you can facilitate a young man or woman learning how to take good care of themselves, to learn how to love themselves, whether it be again or for the first time, um, and to learn self-mastery, tools that they might not have learned in the home, that they stand a better chance of recovery, wellness, and ultimate joy. Yeah, that, no, I, I completely agree. I mean, that's so well said. And, and I think, too, the way you, you worded it is, is right on. For some people, it's, hey, what does it look like to, to love yourself, to forgive yourself? Maybe it's been a long time since, you know, you live there, or maybe it's, Maybe it's the first time, as you said. Yeah, we all are, we're all challenged. You know, we all have we all come into this world with a mission, and 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 I think t particularly today in today's society, which is such a fast-paced, real-time world, that it's very, very, very hard for our young people to understand. What to do? I mean, this is what I hear over and over and over in groups that I, I, I lead. Too many choices, too much pressure. Um, they don't know what to, what to do, what to go, where to go, and who to be. And that's hard. Yeah. No, I mean, I, obviously, I think now more than ever, they're, you know, with the Internet and technology, like all those words, you know, just pressure and options and, and trying to keep up and, you know, Yes, so trying to keep up and what the good life actually looks like, that the model that our parents had no longer applies in this new economic paradigm we're living in. We're going to go to a break in a minute, and I want to make sure I give out all of your uh, contact information because you are a social media-based organization. The website is twloha.com. On Twitter, it is at twloha, and on Facebook, it is to write love on her arms. And that is the organization. And Jamie Torkowski is its founder. We are going to be going to a break. And when we come back, we've got him for one more segment. We are going to talk more about this very, very important issue and the challenges, struggles, and um, opportunities that our young people have in this day and age. You're listening to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, and we will be right back. If you or someone you know is challenged by addiction, depression, having a hard time, please do your best to reach out and touch them 
offer your help, offer, offer to help them find their way. Don't let them suffer in silence and alone. Um, it is a very dark place when you find yourself in the throes of depression. And uh, oftentimes all we need as a human being is to know that somebody cares and is willing to not fix our problems, but sit, sit by us. We think that's an, often a great place to start. It is. And the willingness to listen. Thank you for being with us, Jamie. I know you've got a dash off. To write love on her arms is T-W-L-O-H-A dot com. On Twitter, it's T-W-L-O-H-A. And on Facebook, it is To Write Love on Her Arms. I would love to have you back again and carry on this conversation that is of paramount importance around the world. So have a beautiful and blessed day and keep doing the good work. You too. Thanks so much, Lisa. That sounds great. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's take a quick pause. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Unwrap your present by signing up for Happiness Headlines, our monthly e-zine at HarvestingHappiness.com. Stay tuned for more after the break. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one, and sometimes we all need support. We all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstance. Sure, things will inevitably happen in our lives that are out of our control. There is only ever one thing that is totally within our control, ourselves. When we have command of ourselves, we are better prepared to handle life and bounce back more quickly when challenges arise. Whether you see the glass as half empty or half full, the glass has the capacity to hold more. You have the capacity to be happier. The tool to harvesting your happiness is within your grasp. Are we happy yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. Flashback favorite. Today we're focusing on mental illness, the disease that does not discriminate. My next guest is Dr. Adele Ryan McDowell. And this episode was originally broadcast in June of 2015. Let's join that conversation. And today we're talking about suicide, um, a very scary subject for many, um, and one that most of us would think, how could we ever make peace with suicide? And in fact, there are ways. There is a method and there is a process. And my guest today is Dr. Adele Ryan McDowell. She is a psychologist, teacher, and writer who likes looking at life through the big viewfinder. Dr. McDowell specializes in transformational work using psychoneuroimmunology, which is mind-body medicine, energy medicine, as well as cognitive, behavioral, transpersonal, 
and positive psychologies. She has over 30 years experience as a psychotherapist. Adele's work has encompassed suicide, domestic violence, and sexual assault um, at crisis hotlines. She's the director of an urban substance abuse clinic and the founder as well as director of a holistic psychotherapeutic center. Adele, good morning. Good morning, Lisa. I'm delighted to be here and to have this conversation with you. I am as well. Your book is Making Peace with Suicide, a book of hope, understanding, and comfort. Um, And I think there is a second book, Balancing Act, Reflections, Meditations, and Coping Strategies for Today's Fast-Paced World. That is correct. Balancing Act was the first book, and Making Peace with Suicide is my recent baby. And this is a very, very formidable baby because this is a subject that we as a society are not comfortable having. Absolutely. We have a difficult time talking about death, much less suicide, which is tainted with such shame and taboo around it. You know, if you lose someone, people are like, I'm so sorry you lost someone. But if you lose someone by suicide, People frequently don't know what to say or how to respond, or they say some things that could make your hair curl out. You know, well, they told one mother, if if you didn't have a gun in your home or if you didn't work, um, this mother, when her daughter went back to school, the teachers didn't even know what to say to her. And no one addressed it in the school. It, it's a tough topic, but... We have in the United States a suicide every 13 minutes, around the world every 40 seconds. It needs to be brought into the light. We need to have the conversation to help people and to learn how to make peace with the tragedy. Agreed. And we also should mention that suicide reaches across all socioeconomic groups, all ages, all ethnicities, it is an equal opportunity tragedy. Absolutely, totally. It, for example, um, in India, farmers who kind of take a loan out against a coming uh, crop, right? They want to send their kids into the city for school. So they take out the loan, but bad weather, bad seeds, what have you, the crop fails, and then they're unrelenting unrelenting debt collectors that are harassing and abusive, and many farmers have taken their life. It, it happened also years ago with some GMO seeds, and you had both mom and dad farmers uh, taking their life. In Italy and Ireland, and I believe Greece, for the first time they are having suicide hotlines because of suicide by economic crisis. You know, when you can't work or find work or put a roof over your head or take care of your family, you feel very optionless and you wonder why bother. And suicide can come to the fore. What prompted you to write this book besides the the statistics and and the reasons that you've just stated? Well, actually, the, what happened was that three years ago, I had met a friend, a clinical psychologist, many years before that. I had met her at a healing and shamanism conference in California, and I got a phone call from some other friends from the conference, and they said, Adele, Susan died. I said, what do you mean Susan died? I just sent her an email for her birthday. I know this, that, and the other. I said, what are you talking about? Was it a car accident? And they said no, and they hemmed and hawed and hemmed and hawed. 
And she had had depression, been hospitalized. Um, upon release from the hospital, uh, she took an overdose of pills. That Here is a woman with all sorts of training, right? And I thought, wow, all right, I was rattled. I wrote a piece called A Psychologist's Suicide to help me make sense of it, just wrap my head around it. And then I'm at the kitchen sink doing dishes. And you know that little voice? And the little voice says, you need to write a book on suicide. And I thought, oh, this, okay, I can do that. I'll just knock this book out in six months. Ha ha. <laughs> I, I had to be opened and changed as well. So initially, I the book has a lot of stories, uh, stories from people who have survived the loss of a loved one and how they got through it. And there's so many ways. And then the stories of people who themselves have been suicidal and what changed for them. And because actually the numbers of people who are suicidal are much higher than the numbers of people we've lost to suicide. So it's, it's a major global epidemic. Do you think that the uh, passing of Robin Williams by suicide changed the way we look at suicide or opened the window at least to begin to have this conversation more publicly? Oh, absolutely, Lisa, absolutely, because Robin Williams was totally well loved he was beloved we all of us smiled we couldn't wait to see robin williams and whenever we were going to see robin williams in and we knew him there was something very accessible about him right now originally the press came out and said well you know um he had some financial issues we think and he had some addiction issues but it, the autopsy revealed, and I just learned this, the autopsy revealed that he had a specific kind of dementia associated with Parkins. And I wish I could pull up the name for you. It's something like Luzi's or Louise. There's something, there's a specific name for it. And that was the cause of his suicide. He had moved out of the bedroom he shared with his wife because he was so restless and anxious. And and then he got to a place where his brain became contorted and he ended up in a tart, tight, dark place, I assume. And, and he felt that was his only option. We football players, right? They, and the combat soldiers whose heads get banged around, uh, with post concussion syndrome, uh, what is it called? Chronic traumatic encephalopathy. All of these things, they have found that there is very real organic damage to the brain, right? So we, yes, the major cause of suicide is certainly depression, right? And, and mental illness, but we're finding in today's world, economic, social things like bullying, right? The, um, uh, there's uh, trauma from war, childhood sexual, there's so many reasons of why suicide happens. And, and the, the goal is to is to end the pain. I mean, people well, who, who exactly. choose to, to take their lives just want the suffering to end. Of course, that is the only reason, right? That is the only reason. Sometimes a suicide is well considered. Sometimes it's impulsive. I had the experience in my early days in working in a drug clinic. And um, I was not the director then. I later became the director. But they gave to me this, you know, new person. They said, here, here's a person. She just came out of a hospital after her seventh suicide attempt. In that last attempt, um, she took out her German shepherd 
who was her best friend. And I met her two or three times, the first time the assessment. And, you know, we're talking about, well, you know, get a job, do this, do that, everything to get her life in order. And um, she came in one day and she was happy as could be. And I went, oh, this is great. I was so naive because hours later she had taken her life. Because for some people, when they make that decision, there is relief. I didn't know that then. Yes, I have experienced uh, similar circumstances, and it is, um, it's, it, it's very, very hard to understand. But then you have the success stories, those who uh, have tremendous amount of suffering, and they do get relief through therapy, in some cases through medication, and they say, you know, I'm, I'm going to go on because I'm curious about what tomorrow will bring. Right. And in this, the, the example I gave, that woman certainly had some major biochemical issues, major, to be in and out of a psych hospital and chronically suicidal and on all sorts of medications for the majority of her adult life speaks to some severe mental health issues. You are right, though. There are people who say, I'm in this trough and I, I, I want to find a way out. Where's the window? Where's the hand? How do I get there? We're going to head out to the break. We'll be right back. And that's a promise. Who says money can't buy happiness? Check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life and other fun, fashionable, and inspiring items at shophappyatharvestinghappiness.com. We'll be right back after this quick break. Do you find yourself saying things like, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if... Does the finish line for happiness keep moving? Does the bar keep getting higher? What's getting in the way of your happiness right now? Too much going on? Working too much? Not working enough? Having too many responsibilities? Not having enough money, enough time, enough space? The list goes on and on. It becomes difficult to see all that we have if we focus on scarcity. One thing I know for certain, happiness waits for no one. And sometimes we all need support. Are We Happy Yet? is not another self-help book. It's a guidebook for learning how to harvest happiness through self-mastery, which is the key ingredient into building resilience, hardiness, grit, and emotional stability. Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Each day we get to choose how we are going to show up for life. And at times we need tips for strengthening our well-being. Learn training strategies for greater emotional fitness and improved mental muscle tone at HarvestingHappiness.com. Let's rejoin my conversation with Dr. Adele Ryan McDowell that originally aired in June of 2015. We're talking about something very, very difficult, but something that is very worthwhile to be shared within your community. We're talking today with Dr. Adele Ryan McDowell about Making Peace with Suicide, which is her newest book. And we're talking about how rampant suicide is, uh, epidemic actually around the world, and there are several reasons for it. But we want to um, share some tips of hope, of lightness for our listeners, for those that might be uh, depressed or know of someone who is depressed because suicide 
can be prevented. And we all need to be vigilant and on the lookout for signs of our loved ones who are in distress. So Adele, let's talk about seven steps to uh, possibly help somebody heal from the suicide of a loved one or somebody who is in a dark depression to have them help themselves. Okay, great. I'd love to. The first step is to tell your story. Okay. Basically, we have to get it out of ourselves, right? We need to be able to talk and have somebody bear witness without judgment. Just hear what we have to say. You know, what happened? Um, how do we feel? All of that good stuff, whether you are grieving and often people who are grief stricken will say, I just want somebody to listen to me. I need to talk about my relationship with my lost loved one. And for people who are in, in a, in a dark place, they want somebody to hear their pain. So telling our story for any of us is very important. The second part would be to own our part. And by that, I mean, you know, what's real, what's not real. You know, did we, what really happened here? Uh, is there a way that we can forgive? You know, we forgive ourselves, we forgive them, we forgive institutions, whether it's schools, hospitals, military groups, whatever, that we might need to forgive. And forgiveness takes us out of the stuckness of the past. Forgiveness frees our energy. Forgiveness is a way to release our own burden, right? So if, you know, was this real? But the forgiveness, when, when I talk about forgiveness, I say, let's forgive our real and our perceived injuries and hurts, the ones we gave and the ones we received. And that's a wonderful way of owning our own part. Okay, so what happened here? And then in my years of doing a lot of things like uh, Newtown and 9-11 and what have you, we would do um, what was called uh, critical incident stress debriefing, right? So the third step here is to debrief the dark moments. But I'm a big believer that you bring in the yin and the yang. So not only do we talk about what was the worst, and everybody's worst is different. It could be before the suicide, after the suicide, years before, years after you. Everyone has unique experiences. But also we need to remember the good stuff, the stuff that we did right, because most certainly we did many things. And what survivors of a suicidal loss need to remember is it's not your fault. We have to be very clear. It's not your fault, but often survivors are blamed for the suicidal loss of their loved one. It's a crazy thing that we humans end up doing. You should have known. You should have made it better. But I guarantee you that their loved ones love them and did the best that they could. But when an individual makes that choice to step away, to turn away, they're, they're not doing it to you. They're doing it, as we said earlier, to get out of their pain. So we want to debrief the dark moments and remember the good moments. And then the fourth step is what I call call back your spirit. And I have a wonderful story, but it's pretty long. So it's, it's in the book. But the bottom line is that no matter what we go through, we have to call back our essence. Who are we? We can't have our energy scattered out there. You know, we tend to hold on things. We tend to carry all this stuff with us. So let's call back our essence. And I give a process for that. And then one of the best ways I find to, if you end any relationship is what, what are the lessons? You know, what are the lessons? What did we learn? What did it teach us? 
you know, sometimes I would say a relationship has taught me unconditional love or it's taught me patience. For me, in doing this book, it stretched my heart wide open and taught me new levels of compassion. And then I suggest the sixth step is that you take some quiet time. If you believe in meditation or prayer, whatever's right for you, and you connect with your loved one, it's possible. You just open your heart. Right. You open your heart and a visualization technique I like is just imagine a pool of light, if you will, a pretty garden. What works for you? And there are two chairs and call in your loved one and imagine and imagination is pulling from the psyche and the psyche is the soul. So imagine if it doesn't come naturally, have fun with it, if you will, and just see if it becomes normal. And it's not anything you can control or make happen. But there is a way heart to heart. I had one man who talked about his brother and he said, geez, Adele, when I drive, pull out of the driveway in the morning and drive to work, I feel like my brother's in the car with me. And I said, he is. You know, so <laughs> sometimes if you think it's a message or a sign, it is. Not sometimes. If you think it is, it usually is. Okay. And the, the, the last step would be. I'm big and grounding things in the 3D. So we want to make a commitment to peace. And so to do that, I suggest you, you know, it's like writing a, a little contract or a vow to yourself that, you know, I'm willing to make peace with this. I'm will and making peace means what? Making peace means that we accept. We accept the unacceptable. We accept the horrific. Doesn't mean we agree. It means we accept. Making peace means we forgive because if we don't forgive, we stay stuck. We don't go forward. It's, it's tied up energy and making peace means that we have compassion. And that means that we walk in another person's shoes. Again, we don't have to agree, but we understand their level of pain. I had one guy who said he knew his brother. He just didn't understand what had happened here and he was smart enough to figure out his brother's passwords and he went into his brother's computers and he computer and he found that the he was in serious financial distress and a lot of things had gone wrong he said in finding that it gave he and the rest of the family compassion to understand his brother's choice of course they didn't like the choice but it gave them greater understanding right and then the final part of making a commitment to peace is maybe you know we have um when you get married you get a present when you have a birthday you get a present but maybe as a commemoration of someone Maybe there's a picture or a quote or a rock or a little statue or something that's a 3D reminder that to anchor you that says, I'm going to keep working on making commitment to this. Because I want to tell you, anyone who survives a suicidal loss, they it's a it's a gutsy, heroic journey to walk through it. Not only do they have grief and taboo, but it is trauma. Did you know that suicide survivors are considered a subset and at risk for suicide because of the extreme trauma of suicide? And grief brings up other grief, trauma brings up other trauma. So to walk through this is an enormous journey. Is there light at the end? Yes, you can walk with your newly pieced together heart when you are ready, when you are ready, not when anybody else tells you to be ready, but when you are ready. And this is a very important point that the grief process, the uh, the healing that needs to go on is not uh, time stamped. 
you know, for everybody it's different. And I wanted to just uh, ask you to comment on helping children deal with a parent or a loved one who has uh, suicided. This is a really important topic. And I'll, I'll tell you, when I was doing my interviews, I talked to a gentleman in Boston and he lost his father when he was a boy and his father, uh, father had severe mental illness. And he said to me at the time, he said, Adele, there was nothing there for the kids. And I said, I promise you, we're going to do something. I've actually talked to a woman who writes children's books. I've done the research for her <laughs> because I want us to do something for the kids. But to answer your question, Lisa, one of the big things with the kids is they say they, they, Sometimes adults are trying too hard. I've, I've made that mistake myself, right? We try yeah. too hard with the kids, right? And they want to be, the adults are afraid to, kids can handle truth. I'm not, I'm talking age appropriate truth, of course. I never lie to a kid. I, I don't believe, I never lie to somebody who's suicidal. They'll read your energy. They'll know. They won't trust you. You can say, yes, this happened. And the kid will want to know, well, did I cause it? Was it my fault? Because that's what grownups want to know, too. And and no, honey, you you didn't. But, but didn't didn't they love me enough? And you have to explain again, like to the grownups. Of course, they loved you enough. It's just that they were in a bad place, and what was going on in their head, you know. And whether you talk about, you know, um, in in child friendly language, haywire neurochemicals, you know, that the the brain was not well or whatever. But kids need they need truth. They need safety. Um, dealing with um, after Newtown, right? And one of the dads came home after that first night of Newtown, and he had a grade school kid, uh, junior high, and a high school kid. And one of those kids lost their best friend. And, and he said, okay. And so after dinner, they all went to the family room. They squished the couches and the, the hassocks and everything they had together, the family dog, and they all slept together he, he, you know, he grounded them. Another mom told me when her son lost six best friends at, in Newtown, and what did they do? They, he went to the grave and he put little trucks and little shells on because he wanted to give them a present. And they did, and that's that's what they did because her husband had learned that when he lost his brother. So people have ways, but you allow, um, I think ritual is a wonderful thing for kids. You know, um, I think Paul Newman's camp started it with, um, they started with the balloons and letting go of things with balloons, uh, writing messages and balloons. But you, you give kids some, you allow them the space for their feelings. When I'm dealing with a kid in trouble, I always um, let them draw it out or make it out because it's a great way to get it out. So let them express it, honor who they are and trust them. Well, there is so much more to talk about and the opening of a wonderful conversation that we will continue. Um, we are out of time, and I want to invite our listeners to visit AdeleRyanMcDowell.com to learn more or MakingPeaceWithSuicide.com. On Facebook, the page is Making Peace with Suicide with a hyphen between each word. And on Twitter, the handle is at Adele. Heels. And before we close out the segment, I want to make sure that we let our listeners know that if you or someone you know is in distress, to reach out, to reach out for help. There are places that are available 24-7. Um, the, the National Suicide Hotline is one, and we will make sure we get uh, a couple of these hotlines posted on our website 
We have flown through another hour of purpose-driven media designed to inspire and delight you, our listeners, to create more joy in your lives and within your communities. Here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. It simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guest today, Jamie Torkowski and Dr. Adele Ryan McDowell, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new episode of consciously curated talk radio from the heart. Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on Toginet, iTunes, and SoundCloud. In a complicated world seemingly driven by nonstop negative news, Lisa's mission is to celebrate the upside of life and seek the silver lining of our challenges by transforming them into uplifting growth opportunities for all. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, KBUU, RadioMalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.